0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online
1: at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at
0: Story City. Hi, guys. I am uh, Brogan Wassell. I I, I have been going to Story City for two years now, and I'm going to be reading from the scripture, which is Luke 15 through 32. All right. This is the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, Yeah, please stand for the reading of scripture. Yeah, see, I don't even have to tell you guys. You know. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: guys can be seated. Ooh, it was a hot mic this morning. Thank you. Good morning. That's a funny moment in my wedding. Um, The pastor was so nervous, he forgot to tell everybody to sit down. And so we're like 10 minutes into the wedding and my dad was like, well, I'm sitting down. I guess that means everybody else can too. And everybody, you know, kind of laughed about it. So good job standing up on your own. You guys got this. That's great. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We are so glad that you guys are here. You guys can clap for that. It's okay. Yeah. it's. I don't know if we're clapping for Story City or for Burbank, but that's all right. We'll clap for both. That's, that's phenomenal. My name is Jared. I have the honor and the privilege of being one of your pastors here. It is a joy to be with you guys this morning. For those of you who are new, we are learning to apprentice Jesus together as a family. And apprentice, we say, because... You apprentice by sitting at the feet of a master, and you work alongside them. You watch as they do what they are doing. And so um, together, we are learning to apprentice Jesus through what we call discipleship rhythms. And that is worship and services, live in groups, learn in studies, and serve in teams. And these rhythms help us grow in our ability to serve Jesus and people. And that's what Jesus told us, the two most important commands in the Bible are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, Jesus said, is equal to it to love your neighbor as yourself. And so uh, this is what we're learning to do. Ultimately, the closer that we get to Jesus, the more our hearts will be broken for those who are spiritually disconnected from him. The closer we get to Jesus, the more that our hearts get burdened for those who are not connected to Jesus. And so every Sunday we say, go and be the church. You'll hear us end the service with go and be the church. What that means is to live your faith outside of these walls, to bring the love, acceptance, forgiveness, and hope of Jesus into your everyday lives, but to do it in a way that points people to the goodness of Jesus and to the goodness of his church and the community that that church brings. And so we uh, want to continue to do this. And, And this is why the way that we do this and how we go about this is why we say at Story City that we exist to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. And so we're stoked that you're here. I hope that you'll engage with us inside and outside of what happens on Sundays. If you want to know more, I definitely encourage you to follow the QR code link. Engage on that little card that uh, we talked about, the seat back in front of you. For those in the front row, you just have to steal the one behind you. Uh, It's all good. Um, Or you can go to the next step table on the lawn outside. Uh, Today we're uh, starting a new series called The Father's Heart. And uh, as was discussed, we are looking at uh, three parables that Jesus told in Luke 15, and uh, and in particular, we're going to be looking at one that some of you might have heard of, called the prodigal son. The prodigal son. Now, these parables are about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. And so, I want you to know that we are working from an outline provided by Pastor Tim Keller in a book entitled "Prodigal God." Prodigal God. And as a team, we've exegeted you to this scripture. Uh, Preaches this a number of times, but we want you to know that we're using the outline from the book because it's super helpful. And so if you want to go deeper in this, there's only so much we can do in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. I would highly encourage you to pick up that book and continue to wrestle through this. It's again, it's called Prodigal God by Pastor Tim Keller. And we're going to see this parable challenge the way that we think about what it means to be lost. It's going to challenge our thinking about what sin really is and what it means for salvation. And so let's pray, and then we'll jump into scriptures this morning. But I need a favor from you guys. You guys you guys, okay if I ask a favor of you? Yeah. I am absolutely hurting this morning. Uh, I am in a ton of pain. Um, when I'm in pain, I laugh. So that's, that's why uh, you guys are seeing me laugh right now. Um, it's just one of those, when I'm, when I'm like, when it's devastating pain, when I hit 10 out of 10, then I just don't say anything, which you know is trouble, because if I'm not speaking, there's a problem, Right? You can laugh about that. That's okay. Uh, uh, Yeah, anyway, um, it it was so bad. I didn't know if I was going to be here this morning. Um, And so I just would love if you guys would, I'm going to pray, but would you guys just pray for me as we do this? Is that okay? Uh, It's a tough thing to get up here and speak uh, when you're in this much pain. So I would really appreciate your guys' prayers. And then frankly, I have to fly uh, very early morning to Chicago tomorrow, and I'm like, I'm not even going to be able to eat. The deep dish pizza is like, I got to figure something out. So you guys are all got to pray for me. Father, we just come before you and thank you that, um, God, that I get to serve this incredible church. I thank you for the ways that you have blessed my family and I. Uh, Lord, you've clearly called us to this place, Lord, to Burbank specifically. To the city and county of Los Angeles, we thank you that you have, oh Lord, let us fall so deeply in love with this place, with the people, with this culture. We thank you that you have prepared us and equipped us for this season and this time. God, it is so clear that you orchestrated this move for our family, and, and, uh, and Lord, we, we couldn't be more grateful that we are in, in this church, Story City. Thank you for all that you are doing in us so that we can, Lord, be available for you to do things through us. And Father, this morning, uh, you know, uh, this is a hard morning for me. The, the pain is tough, but you are a healer, Lord. You are a provider, and so we just stand together as a family. And Lord, I just ask for help. I ask that you would take this away, that you clear up this infection, uh, that you would, um, that you would just bring respite, uh, and and that you would relieve this so that I could travel well and that I could speak your word truthfully and well this morning. So, Father, help me not to be a stra- distraction to your word. Help me to be clear and, and uh, in the way that I communicate who you are. I pray that the way I communicate would bring not only glory to you, but, um, but a good name, that people would fall more in love with you each and every time that I get to speak about you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, family. Let's uh, pick up in Luke 15, but I want to start a little earlier. I want to start in verses 1 to 7. If you open up your Bible to about the middle, that's the Psalms. It'll be right in the middle of your Bible. Keep going forward, and you'll hit what we call the New Testament. New Testament starts with the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament Jesus has always existed. But the New Testament starts with Jesus taking on human nature in addition to his God nature. So Jesus is truly God and truly human. And uh, the New Testament starts with Jesus entering humanity. It was always promised, even from Genesis chapter 3, God promises that he's going to enter into humanity and rescue and renew us. And that is the gospel that God has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. The New Testament is the start of that story of redemption through the work of Jesus. And so... um, Again, it starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the third Gospel is Luke, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. And then we'll pick up uh, the rest of the story. It says this. All the tax collectors and sinners, these are not popular people, by the way, in early Israel, uh, were approaching and listening to him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. If you have your physical Bible in front of you, Circle that word, so. That's going to be really important for us. Uh, If you are digitally, you can just highlight that. That's going to be an important thing for us to understand. Verse 4. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, Jesus goes on and tells a story about a lost coin. A woman uh, can't find it, has to sweep the floors of her home. Uh, Most of the homes did not have nice flooring. They had dirt flooring, and so this is why it's easy to get lost. And then he goes on to the story about these two sons. And there's two things that are really helpful. Now, again, we're gonna be teaching this over the next six weeks. So if you're like, hey, I've heard this story before. You didn't get into that part. We will. We're gonna dive deeper and deeper as we get into this. But we want to understand who is Jesus talking to in this first part. That's the most important thing for us to be able to move forward is to understand who this is about. And so there's two things that will help us in, in kind of relating to the context of the story. The first is that Middle Eastern culture, right? In Middle Eastern culture, these stories would not have been known or understood as the things that were lost. We know them as the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son sons, but they wouldn't have been known that way. They would have been known by the person who lost them. So this story would have been known by the shepherd, the woman, and the father. And so when Jesus was telling this story, they would have related to the side of the thing, the, the person who lost the item, not to the side of what was lost. This is going to be helpful because it changes the story, but it also changes the burden on who is to find the lost items. The second thing that's really important for us is some of us grew up understanding the word prodigal means wayward. And that's actually not correct. Pastor Keller writes, the word prodigal does not mean wayward, but according to the Merriam Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, it means recklessly spendthrift, recklessly spendthrift, somebody who has no control over their spending, somebody who spends everything. It means to spend until you have nothing left. So the prodigal son is a guy who has spent everything until he has nothing left. He gives away everything recklessly. And this is why Pastor Keller named his book Prodigal God instead of Prodigal Son. Hopefully you'll get a chance to pick that up. And so this term, Pastor Keller writes, therefore, is as appropriate for describing the father in the story as the younger son. The father's welcome to the repentant son was literally reckless Because he refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand repayment. So I want us to keep both those things in mind. That the first part being that it's on the person who lost it is the point of the story. And secondly, that this is about being reckless. And who is actually being reckless is going to help us understand. So let's go back and look at Luke 15, 11 to 32 again to refresh our memories. He said this. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. This is just as bad then as it was now. Give me my inheritance now while you're still alive. Does not go over well with dads, just in case you were wondering. Okay, so the father does it, which is shocking to the Jewish audience. Uh, This is about as, remember at this point, the law said if you're disrespectful to your parents, they could take you out and stone you. Not in a Burbank way, okay? We're not talking about getting high. We're talking about rocks. Okay? And killing you, just to be really clear. I have to clarify for some of you. It's all right. Okay. So, he distributed the assets. Not many days later, the younger son gets all the stuff, and he takes off. He gathered all his stuff. He travels to a distant country where he squandered his entire estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Uh, as a reminder, pigs are the lowest of the low in Jewish culture. So this is the very bottom. This is the epitome of rock bottom for a young Jewish boy. There is nothing worse than at this moment for him. Uh, He longed to eat his fill from the pods that where pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he comes to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. That's going to be an important part of the story. We'll pick that up when we get to a more detailed look at the father. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants. He doesn't have the guts to go find out what it is himself. He's got to bring somebody else into this. Questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years from you. This is a great attitude to take with your dad, right? And I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you've never given me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now... Uh, If you've been at church any length of time, you've probably heard this parable preached. Most of the time we talk about the prodigal son. We talk about the younger brother, his hurts, his habits, his hang-ups. This is oftentimes uh, something that we kind of leave it at that. And it's supposed to be like a, see, don't be that. Right? Some of us might have even heard this flung at people, you are a prodigal as sort of this like disparaging remark. Uh, some of you might have been called that yourself. Some of you might have called people that. It's usually said with a bit of derogatory tone. But the approach, that approach misses the point of Jesus' parables. Remember, this isn't the only parable he told. He told three parables, and he told three different parables in order to help us understand one point. And so if we focus on this lost or wayward son, we've actually missed exactly what Jesus is trying to tell us. So don't get caught up in that. Let's look at verses 1 to 3 again. Who is Jesus talking to? There's two groups that are gathered there to hear Jesus speak. The first group is the tax collectors and sinners, right? Tax collectors, not a good thing. Uh, Sinners, not a good thing. Generally, we can agree on those things. I'm sure you all love tax collectors now, just as much as they did then, right? Um, My daughter, when she got her, I'm going to owe my daughter money because I talked about her without asking her permission. Um, My daughter, when she got her first paycheck, did the same thing all of us did when we got our first paycheck. What the heck? (laughs) Where's the rest of my money? It's like, exactly. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, so this also represents, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but Jesus is telling a parable, which means that there, it's, it's allegorical, right? There's, there's other parts to this we're supposed to understand. It applies to more than, this, more than just this, and so this will also end up applying to Gentiles or non-Jews. Let's not forget that Jesus is a Jew, and we are called to love Jews today, just like then. Okay. Jesus is a Jew. I digress. Some of you know why I said that. That's okay. This first group is the younger brother in Jesus' story. This is, they all represent the younger brother. This is a part of that. The, the, the problem is, is that they don't follow the Torah or the purity laws. They don't follow all the rules that they're supposed to follow. They've, in, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they've left their faith for wild living. They just, and, and part of it is because they feel like they can never measure up. They feel like they just can't be as good as the Pharisees are, right? And, and so they're, they're going like, I, how, I can never meet that standard, so why bother? Why try? And so it's shocking to them that Jesus would invite them into the kingdom of God. This is a, a radical concept for them. They're going, how could this, this rabbi even be willing to talk to us and accept this in? It makes almost no sense. The tax collectors have gone even further in that they're actually helping the Roman government, the occupying government, Take something that is belonging to the Jewish people, their money. They're helping them in their rule over the people of Israel. I mean, that's about as traitorous as it gets. And so how could Jesus be talking to them and inviting them into the kingdom of God? The second group is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now the Pharisees get a really bad rap because today we're like, I wouldn't want to be like them. But here's the point. The Pharisees actually were created as a group because they were trying to fight the the Hellenization, the Greek influence, and the Romanization, the Roman influence over the people of Israel. And they were saying, we are losing our Jewishness and we are losing our focus on God, the one true God. And by becoming more Greek or more Roman, we are in some ways accepting the practices and all the gods, this pantheon of gods that they have. And so their whole thing was we have to, we have to fight against this. That is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. They believed that all of these things were pulling the Jewish people away from from even understanding what it meant to be a Jew. And so their message and Jesus' message were actually not that dissimilar. In fact, if you look at the book of Luke, now this is just Jared, not the Bible, okay? But if you look at the book of Luke, I think the reason Luke records all these meals the Pharisees had with him as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. And I think the reason is, is because they have no power in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin rules Jerusalem, which is the Sadducees, that's the other the other group of people, right? They're in charge. Uh, the scribes, now there are some scribes who are also Pharisees, but as a whole, the Pharisees do not have any power inside Jerusalem in the ruling council. They have power outside of Jerusalem. So the closer they get to Jerusalem, it looks like they're trying to convince Jesus to get aboard what they're doing because their message is so similar. If they can just ride the popularity of the coattails of this young upstart preacher, but get him under control, then they will have the ability to have this power inside Jerusalem and bring about their change. I think that's why they keep having meals with them. They keep sending higher and higher level Pharisees to try and convince Jesus to come to their side. And Jesus keeps blasting them and for the same things that we'll see today. The best way, and this is the problem, is that they saw the problem. They saw this leaving of the one true God. And, and Jesus is calling people back to the kingdom too. But their best way that they saw to deal with that was to double down on righteous living. And so they held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They studied harder. They obeyed scripture more. They worshiped and prayed regularly. They, they installed more laws to make sure that they were absolutely doing the best they could to be the most righteous people they absolutely could. And this is the group that's represented by the elder brother in Jesus' story. Luke shows how different each group's response was to Jesus. The tense of the verb translated, we're all gathering, conveys the actions of the younger brothers to Jesus was that they were kind of always being drawn to him. Jesus was always attracting this younger brother crowd. They continually flocked to him. It was a pattern of, of, uh, an ongoing pattern in his ministry. It was something that was really obvious. They they just kept coming to him. They felt safe and welcomed with him. But this really puzzled and angered the moral and the religious. And Luke summarizes their complaint. He says, this man welcomes sinners and, and, and even eats with them. Now, even today, to sit down and eat with somebody in Middle Eastern culture is is accepting them. It's acknowledging their existence. It's a sign of peace. It's why every time you have peace accords in the Middle East, they try to have them sit down and eat together. And so often they do not. It's because eating together is an absolute sign of peace. At my last church, we had a missional community who was working with uh, Syrian refugees, and uh, these refugees were coming over uh, at an influx a number of years ago, if you recall, and um, many of these families uh, had been told an awful lot of things about America, and particularly about Christians, and they were very nervous about both, um, and so they were, they were really scared, because not much of it was good, uh, but oftentimes, especially in San Diego, the very first people that they met off the plane was Christians. Christians who were there to help them understand what it meant to find jobs, how to live in and get around the community, how to understand the differences in culture. They were there to help them really work through any of the issues and uh, and just be there for them and love on them as they were making these radical transitions. And it was one of these families in particular that our church is working with The husband didn't have a way to get to work. And so this missional community came and said, hey, uh, we we, we need to raise money to get him a car. Can we do something? And we said, yeah, absolutely. What do you want to do? They said, well, the family would love to share their Syrian food. What if they... Catered, And we just uh, went to the community and sold those plates of food for a certain amount of money. And that would raise money for them to be able to buy this car. And we said, absolutely. So we went into our whole community and said, hey, would you come and support Syrian refugees? The community said, absolutely. We said, the family's going to be here. You can see them and meet them. Uh, They did. It was an incredible turnout. We had a blast doing it. The food was unreal. If you haven't had Syrian food. Whew. Yeah. Anyway. um, Okay. So during the lunch, though... um, we we had the opportunity. We asked if we could pray over the family, and they were a little bit leery, but they said yes. Uh, again, uh, this this Muslim family is struggling to like understand all this Christian stuff. And then one of the things I asked was, is it okay if I eat with you and your family? And his jaw dropped. And he was like, you as a Christian pastor would come and eat with me and my family? And we said, of, of course. You're our guest. And, and we love you. We're here to serve you. We don't want anything from you. We just want to bless you. And, and uh, we did. We sat and ate. We had a great time. He told me his story. Um, he was a factory owner. Uh, he and his family for, I don't know how many generations that owned this factory and his own government had been shooting at him. They blew up his factory, and he was crawling with two of his children underneath him on his hands and his knees trying to escape uh, all the the gunfire and stuff that was going on above him. And and he was just uh, grieving over all the things that he had lost. And here, this man is sitting here with nothing, relying on the kindness of strange Christians as a devout Muslim man in a foreign country going, this is not how I had expected my life to turn out. And while helping with the car was really cool, one of the most impactful moments of that entire thing was the fact that we ate with them. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's crossing all kinds of these cultural and religious boundaries when he sits down as a good rabbi to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He's he's crossing all kinds of things that probably shouldn't be done and yet he's normalizing this behavior and this is why the Pharisees are freaking out. They're like, you shouldn't be doing this. You're giving credence to them. You're accepting them and they're in the midst of their brokenness. Some of them are even working for the foreign government. Worse than that, you're not requiring them to fulfill all the laws that we've been trying to get them to fulfill as Pharisees. Like, you recognize that they're not They're being dissuaded away from the one true God. You recognize their lives are already not in line with who God is. And God has already said that the reason that we're in this mess with an occupying government is because we have failed to be obedient to Him. Why would we not try to be more obedient? Jesus, what are you doing? And they're demanding, they're like, how dare Jesus reach out to sinners like this? At the same time, the Bible says they were jealous. And so it's this you know, these people never come to our services. They're never showing up. Why could they be drawn to Jesus' teaching? I know if Jesus isn't demanding that they conform to the ways of our Pharisees, then he must be uh, not declaring truth as we do. He must be compromising his message. He must be watering down the gospel. He couldn't be declaring truth to them. He must just be telling them what they want to hear, or else they'd be showing up to hear us too. But the sinners were drawn to Jesus. Christians, for those of you who are still spiritually disconnected, you're just checking out Jesus, just push pause for a second. I want to talk to our apprentices of Jesus. Apprentices of Jesus, Christians, are non-Christians drawn to you? Not because you live a life that is indistinguishable from theirs, right? Some of us are living in ways that people have no idea that we're Christians, But are they drawn to you by the way that you love God and love people? If not, Jesus drew them to him without compromising anything. We should too. But this brings us to an interesting point. Who are these three parables or stories for? Who's Jesus addressing? Verses two and three, the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, verse three, so he told them this parable. Jesus is actually addressing the older brother in this story. He's actually addressing, when he tells these three stories, he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees, not the sinners. That helps us to understand what Jesus is trying to get to. Jesus begins to tell these parables. And the parable of the two sons takes an extended look at the soul of the older brother. The story is actually about the older brother, not necessarily the younger brother. While the younger brother's story is appropriate and it's good and it makes sense and we want to gravitate towards that, that's not actually the point of the story. So the people who've been doing right things all their lives are complaining that Jesus is hanging out with bad people instead of good people. And Jesus responds by telling these stories about lost things. In the last story, the bad son comes home and is welcome. But Jesus ends the story in verse 32. We don't know if the older brother ever goes into the, the feast. Did you catch that? He's still standing outside angry. And that's where the story ends. Jesus ends it there absolutely on purpose. Jesus is saying the irreligious and the religious are both spiritually lost. He's saying that both paths lead to dead end. He says the selfish, destructive choices of the younger brother are just as wrong as the moralistic life choices of the older brother. Why? Because the older brother didn't love the father for the father. He loved the father for his things. And he felt like obedience because of compulsion, he was compelled to obey so he could get the father's stuff in the end, was the right way to live when it was really about whether he loved the father or not. And he doesn't. You can see it by the way that he talks to the father as well. Jesus says the selfish, destructive choices of the young brother are just as wrong as the moralistic choices of the older brother. In doing so, he absolutely shatters our ideas of how we connect to God. Because if it's not about Just being lost, if it's not about trying to be more religious or more righteous or trying to do better things, then how do we connect to God? We're going to be exploring this over the next few weeks, but it's essential to understand what does disconnect us from God. And so Jesus is challenging their fundamental idea of what sin is. This brings us to our second observation for the day. We need to let Jesus change our idea of sin. We need to let Jesus change our idea of sin. The sheep, the coin, the son, all represent people who are spiritually lost and disconnected from God. Or as I would phrase it, yeah, spiritually disconnected. Jesus is challenging the, the Pharisees' view of the people they label as sinners. He's saying, you think they're sinners, but you have no idea. You're sinners. As well. And it's important to understand how these, coins, how these things were lost. They were all lost in different ways. The, coin, the sheep is lost through foolishness, it wanders off on its own. The coin is lost through carelessness, she loses the coin. And the son through willfulness, I'm out. But it doesn't matter how it's lost, the fact is that it's lost, regardless of the way and the reasons. When I was in the Navy, I was stationed at Camp Pendleton in San Diego. It was my very first duty station. And uh, I kept getting moved uh, around different um, uh, battalions in order to fix the mess of a particular co-worker everywhere he went. And they kept saying, hey, uh, Jared, I know that you just got, uh, you know, comfortable here. I got, I've got to move you. Why? Because Casey screwed everything up again. And I was like, all right. And so when I would talk to Casey about it, I was like, hey, I, 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 like, this is the third time I've been moved to follow you. What's the problem? And Casey was like, it's these battalions. They're so screwed up. Everybody here is messed up. It's my environment. My boss swore it was genetics and blamed his parents. <laughs> he was like, his parents must have been really messed up because this kid is a disaster. Our bosses blamed my boss and said, you were a lousy manager, right? No one had a clue of like, whose fault is it? Because everybody was like, I don't know, it's his fault, right? The truth is, I think he was a genius. I really do. Because every time I had to come and replace him, it was right before gas chamber qualifications, rifle range qualifications, And what's called the commanding general's inspection, which is the biggest, most labor intensive inspection there is. And so he just happened to be removed before each and every one of those particular things that meant I got to come in and do I think at one point I did the gas chamber in like three times in three months, which is not fun in case you guys are wondering. Uh, But he got out of it every single time. I was like, I don't know when the last time he did this was because I had to keep doing it. Here's the point though. The point is it was all of that stuff, Right. He didn't have a great upbringing as far as common sense. Parents didn't help him much with that. He also just didn't have a lot of capacity in that sense. Super smart IQ guy, very low EQ guy, right? It's okay. He's meant to be an engineer, Gabe. It's all right. I love it. (laughs) Gabe has an exceptional amount of EQ for an engineer. So I'm just saying his coworkers. I'm not talking about Gabe himself. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My daughter is also an engineer, so there we go. That's our engineer jokes. Uh, Okay, but here's the deal. Sin, according to the the picture that Jesus points to, is exactly the same way. It it comes from all different kinds of places, like my coworker's situation. We're born sinful. We're born into sin. We are born sinful. But it's magnified by our sinful treatment. Stuff happens to us, and it's deepened and shaped by our own choices. And so it comes from all kinds of different places. And so understanding what lostness is, is to understand that it's a combination of all of that. If you're taking notes today, this is our third and final observation for the day. We need to let Jesus change our idea of salvation, what it means to be saved. Most people think of religion as humanity's search for God. We look at the world religions, and while while giving different directions on how to do so, they all seem to agree that if we sincerely search for God, we'll find him. Millions of people worldwide believe that they can find God by believing and obeying God's law in the Bible. The problem is oftentimes when we get that place, we feel like if we found God because we did all the right things, then we can't help but naturally dislike or disdain those who aren't finding God because we did it through our own efforts. Why can't you just put in the work? Why can't you just do the work? I found God. If you try, you can. I did. But the Bible turns that upside down on its head. The shepherd must go out and seek the lost sheep. The sheep doesn't find itself. The coin cannot find itself. It is found by the woman searching for it. We cannot find God by trying hard enough. We cannot be good by being good enough. We cannot be saved by our righteous acts. The Bible says that God had to come down into this world to save us. And so salvation must be through grace and grace alone. There's an acronym for grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That is salvation. And so the end of each parable challenges not only the categories of the Pharisees, but it challenges their heart and their attitude towards those who are lost, but also towards themselves and recognizing that they are lost. But also a theme through each of these parables is the joy of finding the thing that's lost. See, the parables that Jesus tells are all about lostness. But remember, we said in the beginning, it's about the person who has lost the things. And so the onus, the burden is on them to go and try and find it. We're going to talk about this more later when we get to the older brother, younger brother. But did you know that the job of the older brother was to go out and be looking for the younger brother? But who's the one in the story that actually finds the younger brother coming back? The father. It's one of the things the father holds against the older brother. You didn't even do your job. You were supposed to be looking. And remember who the older brother represents in these stories. God does not look at spiritually disconnected people the way the Pharisees do. Because the Pharisees don't see themselves as spiritually disconnected. All they do is have disdain for those that don't meet their righteous standards. They feel superior to them. But heaven rejoices when those spiritually disconnected are reached and found. And Jesus is the great shepherd, even more intent and joyful than the shepherd of the parable. He knew that bringing back his lost sheep would mean that he would have to die to do it, and yet he did it willingly and joyfully. And so we should willingly and joyfully be willing to understand both who is lost and then go after that. Jesus came both for the religious and not, both for the younger brother and the older brother. And so here's what I wanna challenge you guys with as we end this morning. I want you to ask the question, in which role do you find yourself? Are you the older brother? Are you the younger brother? How does Jesus' approach to that brother relate to your identity and worth in him? Wrestling with these questions really does help us grow in our ability to love Jesus and people. Good? Let's pray. God, you are incredibly gracious. I thank you for the ways that you have loved us, that you Lord, have not cared whether we are lost because we're trying to be moral and righteous or whether we're lost because we have been immoral and unrighteous, but that you rejoice when we are found, that you have made an effort and energy to find us, that you gave up everything for us. Lord, you set aside your rights. You disgraced yourself by entering as God into human nature. an incredible sacrifice. Jesus, you laid your life down on the cross so that we could have relationship back with the Father, that you would restore and renew all of us. Again, whether we are righteous, trying to be righteous, or whether we are spiritually disconnected and have no idea how we'd ever get back to you. We thank you that we are both found in you. We thank you that you love both of us, that you are enough, that we are enough in you. Praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, amen.